Welcome back to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. I am Jeremy Sims, and I will be your host today as we go through Galatians chapter 5. And Galatians chapter 5 is a weird one for me. I have kind of mixed feelings on it. On one hand, the last several lessons have been so dense with Paul's complicated arguments for his his theological positions that um, Galatians chapter 5 kind of feels like a break. It's like, all right, nothing too crazy in this one. On the other hand, there's actually so much practical, interesting stuff here that I, I really would love to delve into it more, and I hate to only spend an entire lesson, but, you know, uh, I kind of have to stick on some sort of timetable. So before we get to today's lesson, let's do a recap in case anybody's new. Um, basically, what we got here is in the book of Galatians, people had begun to teach that if you wanted to be a Christian, you had to follow the law of Moses, that Mosaic covenant, and Paul very much disagrees with that. He wrote the entire book of Galatians about that. He started off at first just kind of saying, hey guys, I understand the gospel. I got it directly from Christ. My apostleship came directly from Christ. Listen to me. And then he started making a bunch of logical arguments as to why those that were trying to convince the Galatians that they needed to follow the Mosaic law, who are called the Judaizers, those people were wrong and he was right, that it was by faith that we are Christians. In the last lesson, Paul kind of took a, a little bit of a break from logical arguments and he instead made sort of a personal appeal saying, do you guys not see that you've changed, that something's wrong here, that people are manipulating you? I'm concerned about you guys. It's kind of a sweet moment from Paul. And he then does this, this metaphor, which I just can't sum up real briefly, but basically he takes this Old Testament story. It's not a metaphor. It's an Old Testament story. And he says, this is an allegory, the way that Abraham interacted with Ishmael and Isaac is representative of the two covenants, the one through works of the Mosaic law and the one through faith in the promises of God, right? And just like Ishmael in that story was cast out of the camp uh, into the desert, so we are supposed to cast off the Mosaic law and, you know, and follow the promise of Christ. So with that in mind, if we are casting off that old Mosaic law, what then guides us? How are we, how are we driven forward? How do we proceed uh, and Galatians chapter 5 is addressing exactly that issue. The first half of Galatians chapter 5 is kind of a transitional period where Paul's saying, okay, now that you understand all the doctrinal issues, let me just kind of encourage you of what you need to start doing. What does this look like, practically speaking? Uh, and that takes a lot of different forms of what specifically he says, but basically he's trying to help them realize you are now free from the yoke of the law, which we'll get into, you know, what that means. Um, and then in the latter half of chapter five, he starts talking about the famous passage of walk by the spirit. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, where he's really saying, you know, our day to day guide is not the law, but the spirit. So let's go ahead and read chapter five and we'll just start at the beginning all the way through. And then we'll start back up at the top and, and break it down verse by verse. See what we can find. Verse one, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. All right, so let's back up to verse 1. Remember off chapter 4 that we just did last time concludes all these arguments where Paul was comparing the law to a type of slavery and specifically just ended with this idea that that the law was like the slave woman, those that follow it are like the children of the slave woman, but we are the children of the free woman of promised, referring to the promise of, of what was fulfilled in Christ. So with that in mind, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's saying, look, all this work that was done was to make you free. That is like a fundamental good. You are free from the burden of trying to prove yourself worthy of God, uh, which, of course, doesn't work. And it says, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery is referring to the law. The, the Jewish rabbis at the time would refer to, you know, you needing to pick up the yoke of the law and, and fulfill that, like, do your job. Um, but here, Paul's saying, that's like, it's a yoke of slavery. That's not a good thing. It was a bad thing, and you're free. So having established how wonderful it is to be free, uh, Paul then gives one final warning to those that think they are going to go to the Mosaic Law as their, you know, form of justification. He says in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So by accepting circumcision, they're talking about, you know, entering into the Mosaic Covenant. That was a sign that you were going to commit yourself to the law as your form of justification. And Paul says Christ will be of no advantage to you, which is obviously a big deal. He'll be of no effect. It'll, it'll be like nothing. Um, so there are two main views of what this section means. One is essentially that it's saying you're going to be cut off from your growth as a Christian because we live by faith, but now you're trying to put yourself under a workspace system, even though you're a Christian, so you're not going to grow as a Christian. 
The other understanding is even worse. It's to say, not only have you cut yourself off from growing as Christian, you're not a Christian anymore. You have left the faith because you are no longer trusting in Christ. You're trusting in your own works. I'm a little torn on how to take it, but either way, it's extremely serious. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So, verse 3, he's making it very clear that you can't just fulfill part of the law, that there's no halfsies with keeping the Mosaic law as your form of justification. Either you keep the entire thing perfectly and God declares you, oh, you're a just man, you're so good, or you mess up, in which case, you're not, all right? You have to keep the whole law. You can't. They were trying to give them the impression that they could have both faith in Christ and keeping the Mosaic Covenant, and you can't. It's one or the other. And it, he emphasizes that even further in verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. He's saying, if your justification, if what you are trusting in to make you right with God, declared just before God, is the law, then you're severed from Christ. Because Christ is, uh, you come to Christ admitting that you can't keep the law, admitting you're a sinner and trusting in him. So it's a one or the other. If you choose the law, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. I'm not sure there's a sadder section in the scripture than this right here, the idea of being severed from Christ. Christ and falling away from grace. Now, again, I'm, I'm torn on how to take this, but at bare minimum, this speaks to uh, one of the ways that severed is translated. Uh, one translation uses the word estranged, which isn't as quite a severe term as, as severed, but estranged from Christ. Even that, just the fact that you had, it points to you had intimacy with Christ. You were united with him. You were one, and now you're estranged. There's a distance there. Why? Because you've turned away from trust and faith and turned to law-keeping. That's sad. At the same time, I mean, notice it's you've fallen away from grace. It's not the grace moved. Grace is still there. Grace is right where it's always been. God's right where he's always been. But we've changed in relation to him. And, you know, if you're there in your life, if you've gotten some, for some reason, you've lost your trust in Christ and are trusting now in something else instead, whether it be yourself or the law or, you know, some distorted version of God that you've heard. The solution's simple. God's right where he's always been. Just turn to him. Verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So here he's drawing a contrast between what the Judaizers were teaching and what Christianity teaches. He's saying, you Judaizers are trying to prove yourself holy by keeping all this law. But we have a different strategy. We act actual Christians, we, through the Spirit by faith, we are waiting for our hope of righteousness. In that final judgment, when we get a, a glorified new body, sin-free, then we will be finally, in this physical form, pure, and we'll be declared just before God at that final judgment. So we're basically waiting for God to do his work in us as Christians. We place our faith in him, whereas you guys are just trying to prove yourself good enough. We admit we're not, and we're waiting on God to make us uh, finally pure and holy. Uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So pretty clear there, just 
this stuff doesn't actually matter, right? In Christ Jesus, that stuff is could not be less relevant. What is relevant? Only faith working through love. Okay, so it's trusting in Christ, and what happens? It works through love. The faith is the cause, our trust in Christ is the cause, and our love is the effect. And not only love, but not just the emotion of love, not just, you know, general goodwill towards mankind, but a love that works for others. And we'll see, you know, ways in which this manifests itself here later in the passage. So in this next section, Paul's just really going to drill down to to condemning the Judaizers and kind of summing up his final arguments against them. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So he uses this running metaphor. You were running well. You were doing good, guys. Everything was great. And then he says, who hindered you? What happened? It seems to imply almost like there's one person there. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And that word hindered in a racing context uh, would be the idea of like cutting somebody off. That's how they would use that in sports of the day. If you were racing and you kind of got in somebody's way and kind of maybe even caused them to stumble, that's that's hindering somebody. And that's what they did to you. You were doing good. You messed up. And he says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not God that got you on this path, he's saying. And I think there's a very clear implication here that what do you do in this situation when you stumble, when you're hindered? Turn back to the voice of the one who called you. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So leaven is, of course, something you put in bread and it causes the causes everything to expand and get larger. And typically speaking, when the Bible uses it, it often seems to be associated with sin, the idea. And the idea seems to be just like you put a little leaven in bread and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and not only that, but the leaven saturates the entirety of that substance. Like it doesn't just stick in one little spot, it goes throughout and, and the entire thing is leavened. And then it grows and grows and grows. Uh, same thing with sin seems to be the connotation here. Um, he's saying you got off on a little doctrinal issue and it is causing uh, or costing you guys dearly. It's saturated your entire theology now. It's, it's taken over everything and it's growing out of control. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So, a little bit of an uplifting note here where he has confidence in the Lord. He's saying, hey, despite all this worry and concern and, and the seriousness of this threat, I believe God's going to bring you guys to the right conclusion. I, I have some trust in you, I have some faith in you that you guys will get where God wants you to go. All right. Uh, so kind of some encouraging, maybe exhorting, leaning on them a little bit, but he's like saying, you, get, you guys are going to come to the right conclusion on this. I, I feel confident from the Lord. At the same time, he says that, He's saying, look, this the one who is troubling you. And it does seem to be saying one as if it's one, it was one particular person kind of causing trouble in the Galatian community. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Think of like the, what Jesus said about the, the one who offends my little ones would be better if it had a millstone around his neck and thrown into the sea. Um, there is a penalty. And he says, whoever he is, uh, which makes me wonder if maybe he was somebody of some authority. Like he's saying, it doesn't matter what... How, what position he has or how well he's respected, this is not okay. Verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. 
So he goes off on this kind of almost tangent, it seems like, but he's saying, look, these people, for whatever reason, the Judaizers were apparently suggesting that Paul was still teaching that you need to be circumcised to be saved, that you need to follow the law. And he's saying, look, if that were true, the Jews wouldn't be persecuting me. And apparently it was common knowledge that they were, uh, which we certainly see that in, in the uh, book of Acts and uh, and the uh, other epistles of Paul. Um, but yeah, he's saying, look, if I was saying that you didn't need the law, they wouldn't be coming after me. The offensive part is the cross. The offensive part is the idea that Christ paid for our sins, that he fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's why people are coming after me. If I am teaching you still need to be under the law, they wouldn't worry about me. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I can't read this verse with a straight face. Um, so to me, he, he concludes, this is his final thought, more or less, for the, for the uh, people spreading this nonsense. And he's saying, I wish they'd castrate themselves. Uh, so there's several layers to this. One is that, you know, the whole symbol of entering the Mosaic Covenant was to cut off the foreskin of your penis. And he's saying, hey, why, why don't you guys just keep on going? Keep cutting there, guys. <laughs> and I think this works on many different layers, too. Um, there's, uh, for one thing, um, you know, you think about uh, what what happens when you castrate yourself. Well, you can't reproduce anymore. And I think there's a little bit of that element, too, that doesn't want them reproducing their doctrine anymore. There were also cults at the time in this area, uh, or at least close to this area, that would um, castrate themselves. And there's a whole thing behind that. So he might be saying, look, you guys have more in common with these pagan worshipers than you do Christ. So having finished his condemnation of the Judaizers, Paul now p turns his attention to the Christians and says, look, you guys are called to freedom. Now, what do you do with that freedom? In verse 13, he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what does he mean by freedom here? He's Go back into the last couple lessons uh, and listen to those if you haven't, but basically it's this idea of you are no longer trying to earn your status with God, all right? You're free of that burden. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So in other words, you don't have to earn your status with God. That's true. But don't use that as an excuse to just give in to all your sinful desires. You see, this is the trap that often the term legalist is used. People that are obsessed with the rules of the Bible, uh, especially those that think you have to keep the keep all the rules to be a real Christian or really saved or whatever. They're always afraid that if you tell people they're free, then their immediate reaction is going to be just to commit as many sins as possible. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I have no responsibilities anymore. I'm just going to be a horrible person because God will forgive me. Well, that's not what Paul says you're supposed to do. Rather, he says, okay, you're not under the law anymore. You're not enslaved to trying to follow that Mosaic covenant. But what you need to do, you do have things you need to do. What you need to do is use your freedom to, through love, serve one another. That's your mission. That's your guiding principle. That's what keeps you on track now. Verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
So the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Uh, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You should remember this from Jesus, who said the same thing. He said, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But he said, the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul's basically rephrasing Jesus here. And he's saying, look, you guys, these Judaizers want to tell you to fulfill the law. I'm telling you the heart of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you can do that, then you can do it all. As far as God saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, it's kind of the same thing, because you're not going to be truly loving other people if you don't love God, because you have to know God and be in line with God to then know how to love others. Plenty of people doing plenty of things in the name of love to one another uh, that don't understand God and his heart, and therefore are harming one another. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is kind of an odd little cap on things, but it seems like perhaps the Galatian church had a specific problem with kind of being snipey with one another, of having issues with personal relations. And although the case for that, uh, we see several things that might indicate that in Galatians 5. And it kind of makes sense with having that legalist attitude, because if you have the attitude that I'm one of the people that follow the law and you aren't, well, you can easily see where that would come from, would get to the point of being kind of taking people apart. Uh, in fact, many of us have probably been in parts of churches that had a little bit of that spirit to it. And it kind of makes sense because like if you've ever been uh, working at a job and you feel like you're the only person who's really trying, uh, that's a very embittering sort of place to be, right? Uh, it's really hard not to get resentful here. So if you're somebody who thinks, oh, I, I follow the law, nobody else does, well, you know, it can it can easily lead to that. But he says, you know, that's not the spirit we need to have. It's the spirit of love for one another. So with that, Paul wraps up kind of this first half of the chapter five, where he's basically just been saying, you know, this is my final thoughts on this Judaizer heresy that you've been spreading around. And now he's going to get practical. Uh, Paul always likes to start with the, the theological stuff, or at least get the theological stuff out there first. And then after the theological stuff is established, he likes to turn his attention to the more practical everyday Christian living, applicational stuff. And here Paul's going to say, okay, so we're getting rid of you're not following that Mosaic law anymore. That's not what you have as your moral guiding principle. So what do you have? And he's going to set up uh, some parameters for how we know if we're walking with God or not. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So if you've read much of Paul's writings, you know he always, he has this dichotomy between walking with the Spirit and walking with the flesh, you know, uh, of either trying to follow with God and the leadings of the Holy Spirit or follow with your fleshly efforts of trying to do your best. And he's making it clear, if you're walking in the Spirit, then you're not going to do those things of the flesh. And flesh, we don't mean literal skin. We're talking about sinful desires, like the corrupt nature of humanity. Now, notice how countercultural this is at where we are in our modern society, because Paul is saying, look, don't fulfill whatever your desires are if they're fleshly, if they're sinful. Instead, walk with the Spirit, yield to the Spirit, walk with His promptings, uh, the way God leads you. Whereas society says, whatever you find in yourself, express that, because that is your truth, that is your goodness. Just bring that to the surface and celebrate it. But that presumes that whatever you find in yourself is good, which is a huge presumption. I know there's plenty of stuff inside me which isn't good, but that's where a society is. And Paul's saying, no, 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 there's plenty inside you that ain't great. Walk in the Spirit, and you're not going to give in to those things. 
Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So we see that there's this uh, this conflict between the desires of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and your own fleshly desires. They're going in opposite directions, and you can't please both of them at once. you got to choose a lane, right? And it says here at the end, it keeps you from doing the things that you want. Now, you might get the impression that that's like a deadlock. Like, you know, you can't win. You're just constantly going back and forth, fleshly and following the Spirit. But no, it says in the previous verse, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is more powerful than your flesh. It's just a matter of whether you yield to it. Okay, so that's the desires you will not fulfill. It's the sinful desires. The Holy Spirit will restrain you if you give in to it, or if you if you yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And notice those desires still remain. Wouldn't be great if we didn't have sinful desires, but that's not what the Bible teaches. You have them. You have to learn to control them and yield to the control of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, you could. this is a little bit of an odd one. Maybe you could take it a few slightly different ways, but I think the gist of it is this. What's being said is, you as Christians are led by the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside you. And this is something new, something that the Old Testament believers didn't have. The Old Testament believers had the Mosaic Law, which was this outward force that was trying to shape them to follow God. But just as was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, check it out if you want to see what I'm talking about there, um, in this new covenant, in this new arrangement, God was going to send the law inside people's heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit role is fulfilling here. He is guiding us from the inside to make us walk with him, to make us conform to his will, right? So it's not an external pressure anymore, it's internal. So in other words, if you're led by the Spirit, if you have the leading of the Holy Spirit, you're not under the law anymore, you have something better than the law. Now, in case you think that gives you an excuse to do all sorts of sin, Paul straightens you out real good here in these next verses. In verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's go back up to the top. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. What is Paul saying here? He's saying the works of the flesh are obvious. It should be easy to see. You, Anybody should be able to spot these, you know, because he's trying to give them a guide to say, when are, when are you falling to sin? What's, what's your moral principles? And he's saying, look, getting into the sin is clearly seen. The works of the flesh are evident. It's not hard, guys. Now, you say that, but yet we see people in the world who are calling good evil and evil good all the time. Why? They're of the world. They don't have that spiritual discernment. For Christians, this should be very obvious. And if it's not obvious to you, then that indicates something has gone wrong in your spiritual walk. The problem isn't with the Bible. The problem is with you. Now, you'll notice that the list actually starts off here with sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Some versions will have adultery in there as well for reasons we don't have time to get into. But um, these are very similar words, but they're, they're nuanced a little bit differently. Adultery, of course, is breaking the marriage covenant. Uh, sexual immorality is like a catch-all term for just any sexual sin. It could include 
just everything basically. Uh, impurity is very similar, but it also includes the idea of like pornography and vulgar talk, uh, not necessarily strictly physical acts. Um, sensuality is probably the most interesting one because sensuality has the idea of just like having no restraints, uh, like public indecency, not like being naked in public, although that would also count. But um, sensuality has this idea of like basically your sexual sin, you will do it in front of the whole world and you don't care. The whole world can know about it. You have no shame. Next up is idolatry. I'm sure you know idolatry isn't just literal figurine worship. It also can be if you put anything in the place of God, any, make anything more important than God, uh, whether it be an object or at activity or, or whatever. That's a form of idolatry. God should be our highest priority. But there's something I wanted to say about this. Uh, I see a really nasty trend in Christian communities to make accusations of idolatry at other people. Um, and this is like where somebody identifies something another Christian is interested in, whether it's an activity or a person or a, a cause, and says, you care too much about that, that's idolatry. No, that is wicked. Do not make that accusation, because you don't know what's in their heart. And most of the time, people have no basis for saying they're prioritizing this more than God. It's just a cause or an activity or something that you don't care as much about, and you're wanting to make, uh, you're wanting to tell somebody else it's sin. No. Unless you somehow have insight into their heart, or they made it clear it's more important to them than God, that is completely out of line, and it needs to stop. Next up is sorcery. Now, sorcery isn't the most common sin these days, but it's growing, guys. Sorcery, witchcraft, paganism, all these things that used to be fringe, Christianity is going on the decline. If trends continue, this stuff is going to be much more common in the not-too-distant future. So we need to be thinking about this stuff and, and figuring out how we are going to be witnessing and reaching people who are sorcerers uh, or witches or whatever. Um, next up, we have enmity. And check out all this stuff. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All this stuff is sins amongst people, people treating each other badly. And the first one in here is enmity, hatred. Um, is how that's more often translated, as if that undergirds all these other sins. It's the root of all of them. And also, I mentioned earlier that um, the Galatians seemed like they may have had issues with this. This is part of the reason Paul spends half the list just talking about sins between people here. So enmity, hatred, strife is like an argumentative spirit. Jealousy is wanting something that other people have. Next up is fits of anger. So I have two children under the age of five, so I see fits of anger quite a bit. You know, something doesn't go their way and they melt down. But I don't know if we're too much better. Let's let's talk about cursing for a second. Now, it seems to me, at least in terms of how people talk, that Christians in general seem to think that cursing isn't a sin. And uh, I was I was in that camp myself for a while. Um, didn't think it was a big deal. But here's what I found. I found that when I get, when I started cursing. It was because usually something didn't go my way emotionally or, or physically. You know, there's some emotional or physical pain. And then I just lost control of myself and let all the nasty, mean words come out of my mouth that I felt like. And um, I realized that that I couldn't respect myself. I was losing control of myself. I was having a fit of anger, not really that much different than a little child throwing a timber tantrum when things don't go their way. So I'm not going to tell you there's some giant list of words of what you can and can't say. There is some, you know, go as the spirit leads you. But I will ask, are you are you throwing, are you having fits of anger? Because that is not okay. 
Next up, we have rivalries. And rivalries is an interesting one because it actually has a political background. It's something that you would use to describe a politician. And you know that stereotypical political attitude of, of just the politician who just wants to get ahead and have his own profit and get his own power and glory? Well, that's the spirit of rivalries, also translated as strife, selfish ambition, disputes. I like, I like uh, selfish ambition. I think that's a pretty good one for it. But yeah, you've seen this on a small scale too. People just are like, what's in it for me? That's the spirit of rivalries. Uh, dissensions just kind of has this idea. It's also got seditions is another way that's translated. It's kind of the idea of just pulling apart what should be left together, <laughs> you know, uh, and divisions uh, kind of similar, but this is translated as factions, party spirit sometimes, or heresies. Uh, it's perhaps the, a little bit of the idea of dividing over things that shouldn't be divided over. Also, I think probably the primary idea here is, is, is dividing from the truth of God. Uh, dividing from what is actually true. That's creating, you know, that word we we use sometimes as heresy, right? Next up is envy. Now, envy is much like jealousy, but envy, instead of having like a, I want what they want, want the, I want what they have and I want to take it, envy is more like I'm bitter about the fact that they have something I want. It's more emotional. Drunkenness, pretty self-explanatory. Don't get drunk. I think we can fairly apply this to other things that you should not get intoxicated on any substances. Don't impair your thinking. Have a sober mind as God instructed us. Orgies. Orgies is not so self-explanatory. This uh, word that translates orgies also has been translated as revelings, revelries, carousing. It's basically like an unrestrained party and um, kind of party you'd call the cops on, right? So don't do that. Um, also murder is in some versions. You'll see that too. Pretty self-explanatory. Don't kill people. Even if they're unborn, that part's a little bit in dispute in our culture, but it's not dispute according to God. Um, and things like these, Paul, Paul finishes off saying, and things like these, like this is not exhaustive list. There are other things the flesh does. This is just give us an idea. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, do such things, apparently the, the verb tense here, if you know the Greek, according to all the commentaries I read, this isn't talking about somebody who occasionally does these things. This is talking about somebody who like constantly dwells in this place, like you are daily just returning to this, uh, not daily necessarily, but just like this is your your general state of existence is living this sinful life and saying you will not inherit the kingdom of God, which as I understand it is, is core of, sort of a salvation issue. If you've trusted Christ, then you are co-heir with Christ. You are part of the kingdom of God. So what is being said here? Is this saying if you if you do these things habitually, you're, you've lost your salvation? I don't think that's the idea. I think the idea is rather to say that the citizens of heaven, those who are part of the kingdom of God, they do not act in this way. It's like a, it's a straighten up sort of thing. It's saying, this is not who you are. This is not who you're supposed to be. This is not the characteristics of a true child of God. Thankfully, the passage doesn't end there. It goes on, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So notice it says fruit of the Spirit and not fruits of the Spirit. And I think the, uh, the importance of that is that it's not like the Spirit is giving some of these qualities to some Christians and other of these qualities to other Christians. Rather, if we walk in the Spirit, if we abide in Him, we will, He will naturally grow these things in all of our lives. He wants us to have all of these qualities 
working and manifesting in our lives, just like the works of the flesh were manifesting in those people that give in to the flesh. Uh, he wants everybody to have this. And what's the first thing? The first thing, the most primary thing to mention first, it's love, agape love, that love that gives itself for others. In some ways, all these other qualities might be like um, sub-manifestations of the primary quality of love. Next up, we have joy and peace. And I'm going to talk about these together because the Bible talks about them together quite a bit. Um, and I think they, they're linked together in important ways. So I've often struggled with how do I incorporate joy and peace in my life? Like, how am I missing that? And I think I'm beginning to get it. And I think the deal is that we tend to look at things in, in an earthly, temporary realm, like what's going on with me today and tomorrow and next year and 10 years from now. But I think you can't have joy or peace properly unless you're looking with things with an eternal lens. Like happiness is based on happenings, which is what's happening, you know, right now. But joy can transcend that because it's based on what God has done for you in eternity. What you have with you, no matter what the current happenings are. And at the same time, that joy should also be your source of peace. What God has done for you in eternity knowing that all things will work together for good to those that love him. Patience. I actually prefer the the translation that some go with of uh, long-suffering, because I think that gets to the heart of a really important issue, that there is a lot of suffering in life, and we have to have the patience to bear under that that suffering. Long-sufferingness, I think, is an important virtue that we that kind of gets neglected these days. Um, kindness and goodness, these are both pretty much self-explanatory, um, and they're very similar to one another. Goodness kind of has a little bit of an element of generosity to it. Uh, faithfulness has many different aspects to it. It's faithfulness to God, trust in Him. It's faithfulness in terms of um, being a reliable person. It's faithfulness in terms of being someone of moral conviction. Gentleness is another one that's interesting, because gentleness, kind uh, also translated as meekness, um, kind of has that idea of, in our cultural mind, of kind of being like a doormat, but that's not what's intended here. It's more like the idea of restrained power. It's somebody who has the power to assert themselves, but knows when to be humble and gentle and meek and to use their power wisely and prudently. Self-control. Self-control is an interesting virtue because I don't think we think in terms of self-control very much as that being something God wants for us. I think we have the idea of like God control, which in a certain sense is something God wants, but God doesn't want to like be pulling our strings like like puppets. He wants us to learn to control ourselves, to be in submission to him, yes, of course, but to be willingly in submission to him and to control our own actions. Uh, like like grown-up children don't need to be restrained constantly by their parents, right? Uh, to be mature. And then Paul ends with, against such things there is no law. And I think this is acting as an understatement. He's like, nobody would want to restrain you here because these are good qualities. Anybody would be happy to have people with these qualities. Also, I think he's saying you're fulfilling the moral law. In some ways, you're fulfilling the spirit of the Mosaic law by doing these things. Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We were talking earlier about those works of the flesh and how it says people who habitually do those works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of the God. But here, I think, is the counterpoint to that which balances it, where Paul is saying, those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who have trusted him, they have also already crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. All these sorts of things, 
you're already dead to it. And how are you dead to it? Because if you've trusted in Christ, you are united with him, and he has been crucified. His flesh was offered. He died in our place, and we are spiritually united with him. Those sinful passions and desires have already been crucified on the cross through Christ. So having laid out the instructions on walking in the Spirit, Paul's then going to summarize the matter here in these last couple verses. Verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So if we live by the Spirit, if Christ has saved us, if the Spirit has regenerated us, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's walk side by side with the Holy Spirit. If he's good enough to save our souls, let's also walk with him day in and day out. It's like we were talking about before. In a certain sense, you are crucified with your passions and desires. And in another sense, you have to do that daily. In one sense, you are united with Christ and you will be declared righteousness as if you never sinned, even though you do. In another sense, we still struggle with sin every single day and we have to make sure we are putting those sins to death every single day. So that gets us to this last little bit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What's up with that? Well, for one thing, it's another hint that the Galatian church had a lot of problems with interpersonal issues where they were kind of having a lot of strife, I guess. Um, and it makes sense with that law background of, of some people thinking like, well, I understand the law and I keep the law better than you. Well, they were conceited. They were thinking too much of themselves. Now Paul's explaining to this to them. And they might still use this as, well, now I understand Paul and I'm conceited about it. The idea is don't think too much of yourself. Why? Because this provokes people and it causes envying. All right. Um, and yeah, we don't have time to give that in more detail. But anyway, so this is going to be a really good springboard for the next section where it talks about restoring brothers who have fallen. So that is it. Man, we have covered a ton of territory today, haven't we? <laughs> Maybe I should have broken this up into two lessons. It's so much stuff in this section. But we get kind of Paul's final thoughts on the Judaizers, where he's saying, you know, you've been set free, get rid of these people. They should be cut off from the church. They should be, I wish they'd castrate themselves. Um, you know, get final warning on the seriousness of these issues and like you were running well, just get back on track. So he has those kind of final thoughts on the Judaizer issue and then he gets in the practical stuff and he says, walk with the spirit. That is your guide. Walk with the spirit. Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk with the spirit. That's all that really matters. Next time we'll come and finish up with chapter six. And uh, there, Paul, like I said, gets into restoring the brethren and really bigger picture of just bearing one another's burdens. And he applies that in a few different ways in chapter six. And then he kind of says his goodbyes and, and kind of does like, I guess you could say, like a little recap of everything. And uh, he says, later. And, and that's where we end. So that's what we got to look forward to next time. I uh, appreciate you guys so much for, for joining me and uh, I will catch you next time. Bye.